I'm Kieran. And I'm Eve. This is Kitchen Table Cult. Where two quiverful escapees talk about our experiences in the cultish underbelly of the religious right. Hey, Kieran. How's it going? It's it's going. It's hot here in Berlin. It's hot and humid, and I am melting. It's, you know, summer, apparently. Come back to Virginia. It's gorgeous where you're right now. Yeah, you have air condition. Yeah. I'm... I'm I, I miss air condition now. How how are you? Not melting. Not melting. Um, getting ready for a a big CRHE event at our house next weekend. So doing lots of like um, pretending that our projects are not in in progress and hiding <laughs> hiding things. <laughs> just just put everything in the closet and under the bed. It's fine. Everything in the shed under the porch. Yep. Yeah, we're just you know tidying up the yard. I I mowed our hill of a backyard for the first time since we moved in in December on Saturday, and it will be the last time I am ever mowing that hill because I almost died several times. Oh God, that's um, fair. But that's not what you're here to talk about. No, I'm very excited. We have someone super cool joining us on the podcast today. She was in Humans of New York. And Dietra, would you like to introduce yourself? Mm -hmm. Hello, and thank you for inviting me and having me. Introducing myself is uh, quite tricky to me, but, you know, (laughs) I'm 61 years old. I was born in Arkansas to a pastor and his wife and ultra-conservative religion and married in it. Uh, raised seven children in it, and as you said, was featured on Humans of New York for some decisions that I made, and I now live in Harlem, New York, and live a different life. And you're a singer, right? Yes, I am a singer. Uh, I've done several shows in New York. Before the story came out, I had I have done six shows. They're called One Woman's Journey to Love. And then I wrote a one-woman play and did two performances of that three years ago, uh, four years ago, I guess. And Mm -hmm. then uh, because of the story, I have 10 shows. So I've done five of those. I have five more to complete. Uh, It's been so much fun to get back to singing and doing narrative to string them together to take the audience on a journey. That's, That's so cool. I'm so happy for you. And just for our listeners, like, for your information, Deidre is lovely and working on practicing they, them pronouns. So if she makes mistakes, nobody cares. And we're all friends here. (laughs) (laughs) No one gets angry. Um, I'm so happy you're here. I'm just, I'm just like, so tickled that you responded to my comment on Facebook and were willing to, you know, chat with us. Like I, I have had a couple experiences of minor virility and it's just overwhelming all the messages you get and all of the emails and comments and stuff. And it's, it's hard to respond. So I, I did not expect you to be sifting through and actually responding to people and reaching out to me. So I'm really happy you took the time. Well, you know, I have, as you have experienced, I've received hundreds. I don't know that I can literally say thousands, but well over a thousand and hundreds more past that messages from all over the world. And I have read all of them. And what I try to do is just send a red heart and, you know, go from there. Um, It's been an interesting experience as well. Some people jumped on the bandwagon and I began to receive very unwanted messages and Mm -hmm. pictures. Uh, so I had to do a lot of blocking, but uh, I I tried ha- I I tried to let everyone know I appreciate you validating the story or encouraging me with a red heart, uh, and thank you for you know reaching out in that manner. Yeah, I mean I my roommate follows Humans of New York religiously and. And she kind of came downstairs yelling, being like, oh, my God, it's a quiverful mom. <laughs> um, I don't know if you, you use that term for yourself, but that's that's what the terminology we use for where we came from. So, 
Um, Could you repeat the terminology? Quiverful as in blessed is the man whose quiver is full of arrows. Like having as many kids as possible because it's God's plan for you. Right. I was not a part of the quiverful quote movement, but I was in that mindset after my fourth child that I didn't want to prevent it. There came a point after my last three babies died early in pregnancy that, you know, my prayer became, if I can't keep them, I can't handle this. So would you please either not let me get pregnant or, you know, let me keep one. And I never got pregnant again. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I, I heard similar stories and I know that there's a lot of people who wouldn't use that term and it's been kind of a retroactive, like, I don't think I, I heard that term until I was in high school. Um, and my parents didn't, you know, explicitly identify with it. Um, but it was absolutely like once I looked into, okay, where's, what does this term mean and where does it come from? I was like, oh, yeah, they had all those books in the house and believed all of these things. Right, you right. read Mary Pride's The Way Home, but that was a prominent feature of my childhood. I, I see. You know, I know her name uh, from the homeschool world. I'm not for sure I ever read anything she wrote, but I do know that name. Mm-hmm. You didn't miss much. Truly. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. we will we will link to your Humans of New York story in the show notes so that people can read it there. But for those who haven't, you know, who missed it, um, I want to talk a little bit about one, how it, it came to be, and then two, a little bit of what you shared there. Well, actually, what happened was a volunteer in the homeless shelter where I lived here in New York for four months wrote to Brandon, who is the author and publisher of Humans of New York, and told him that she volunteered in a homeless shelter. And there was this woman uh, who really didn't seem to belong or fit in. And I didn't get to read the email. He told me it was rather short. um, And he decided to reach out. And she contacted me back in December and was like, Deetra, do you know about Humans of New York? I was like, oh, yeah, I love the stories. Now, at that time, mm-hmm. I did not follow them, but I'd read several. And she said, well, I just got through talking to Brandon, and he may be interested in featuring you. Would you be interested? And I was like, well, sure. You know, I've tried to learn to be open to I've, I've tried to be open to doors that open, you know, to mm-hmm. me and just see, walk through and see if I like the decor and the atmosphere. And if I don't, I leave. And if I'm interested, you know, I'm like, wow, this is different, but it feels good. I'm going to stay right here and see what happens, you know. Mm-hmm. And so he contacted me within a couple of days. And, you know, Brandon validated me in a way that no one else had been able to accomplish. And after our initial couple hours together, photo shoot and him asking questions, because he was like, you know, I do one page stories or I do a series. Mm -hmm. And he was trying to ascertain what he wanted to do in this situation. And like 15 minutes in, he leaned over and just got hold of both of my wrists with his hands. He was sitting across from me and he said, I'm so proud of you and he said you know i know stories and here's the deal brandon makes his living and has 30 million followers and he knows stories people all over Mm -hmm. the world follow this man because of his ability to step into someone's life and tell their story and he said this is the most incredible story one of the most incredible stories i've ever heard and i'm gonna do a whole series he first he mentioned 11 or 12 and then it was 13 and then he said i had yet 14 and we ended up with 15 chapters so wow (laughs) um Anyway, I am grateful doesn't cover, um, appreciative doesn't cover, but I am changed forever by this man being intrigued and coming and talking with me and publishing my story. You said he was able to affirm you in ways that hadn't happened before. What 
what did he how did he do that and what was that like well when other people would ask me questions and in seven years i've been asked by probably ten thousand people you're not from new york where are you from <laughs> arkansas but, um and this conversation ensues and what i have figured out is when a woman of my age leaves everything and comes to new york i'm not a kid coming for fame or fortune people are kind of like you know yeah she's kind of quirky i kind of want to know what's going on and i answer questions so uh, and I would say, oh, my goodness, you're so brave. You're so strong. And at first, it would hurt my feelings intensely. And I never told them. But <laughs> it'd be like, yeah. oh, yes. You know, I, it'd be like, I'm not brave. I'm not strong. You don't understand. You're denying me the fear and the angst and the desperateness of what I was living and, you know, the escaping. It's like no one ever mentioned that part of it. And my side of the coin, that's all I knew. And their side of the coin, they saw something different. And Brandon was able to say, I want to do a whole series on this. This is one of the most incredible stories. I can't believe you're still standing. So he was validating, oh, my goodness, look what you've done and where you've come from. And in spite of just trying to live in New York, you're doing shows. You have a creative side to you that you've developed. I want to know more. Hmm. And that validated and and I had a meeting with a book agent, and we were talking, and I was like, you know, I, the story has let me know that I guess it was quite an adventure. You know, to me, it was just normal living. And he said, the idea that you think this is normal is hilarious. <laughs> what, I was, what I was living. Uh, yeah, I know that's it's not normal, but of course, it it feels it feels like. If, all, if it's all you know, like, of course, of mm. course, you're not going to think that it's ex exceptional. Right. Well, and when your every breath and cell is honed into trying to figure out, okay, I'm alive. What am I doing in New York, which was crazy after being in Arkansas? All right. How do I, you know, walking the sidewalks? Oh, that got a help on its sign. Let me see about working there figuring out jobs, you know, my son and his wife left and I said, no, I'm staying here and going through de Blasio's domestic violence unit, trying to figure out how to live because I couldn't afford a room, you know, how to get a divorce in New York took me three years, how to get a full-time job when I'm working four jobs, seven days a week. So all of those things kept me so occupied. I didn't have time to think about I'm doing something that's kind of weird, but people are like, wow, I uh, can't believe she's willing. And when I lived in the homeless shelter, one of the guards told me one day, he said, you do realize most people would go back. And I was like, go back to what? He goes, to what you know. And I looked at him and I said, you don't know how bad it was. I said, I can't go back. Mm -hmm. And he said, most people wouldn't know what you're doing. And, um, it was horrible. I'm going to, I'll tell you, it was, I don't ever want to be homeless again. But in the middle of that, I can also say I felt like there were steps ahead of me, you know, where I was warm, safe and dry and protected and even loved, if you will. And I didn't know what was going to happen to me. I just believed that it could change at any moment. Well, and I mean... Karen can probably speak to this as well, but like once you realize that there's nothing left to lose, you might as well just try it all. Yeah. The the barren garden of fucks, as I like to call it, is like a very terrifying and also liberating place to be, where it's just like and, and that's something that a lot of people who haven't escaped abusive and super religious and toxic environments like we do like don't necessarily understand is like sure I like my parents definitely want me to come back home and go back into the fold but like I would die like the me that exists now would not exist cannot exist and survive in my parents world anymore and it's like it's right. it's, it's n literally like not an option it just doesn't it 
people talk about asking their parents for stuff. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand. True. Um, I, like I have two sons who ask questions. And to me, that is the defining difference of life is if someone's willing to ask questions, I can provide them legitimate answers. But if people don't want to ask me questions, I can't provide answers. Mm -hmm. And what I was living in that world was hidden. It was hidden. Mm -hmm. And I was enabling it, which I was raised to believe that I had to be submissive, forgiving, and loving, and God would bless everything, and it would be not necessarily perfect, but kind of, you know. Right. And when I finally realized, I went and talked to somebody 32 years into my marriage. I'd never told anybody about my marriage because I'm a hard worker. It's going to work out, and I would appeal to him. <laughs> and begged him over the years to get help. So when I finally went and talked to somebody, he said, I need to talk about this. And I said, I have gathered Polaroid snapshots from my marriage. And you know those moments in life where your brain snaps a picture and you try to play the game that used to be in the old highlights magazine called What's Wrong With This Picture? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't figure out what was wrong. I just knew that everything in me was screaming, something's wrong with this picture. But if I ask a question, I was told, you really want to believe that as my wife? Oh, you're asking me a question? You think you're better than I am, don't you? Mm -hmm. No, I don't. I'm your wife. I'm asking. So you want to be in control? Is that it? No, I don't want to be in control. I'm just asking. So it was, yeah. okay, well, I can't figure out what's wrong with this picture. So I, I laid out the Polaroid snapshots for her, described them. And she was like, if he was beating you, would you leave him? And I was horrified. I said, well, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm an intelligent woman. Of course, I know that's wrong. <laughs> and her next, segment, her next segment was, you'd be better off if he beat the crap out of you every day. And it was at that moment, it was like all of a sudden the flashlight turned on inside of me. And I could see all the broken bones and the bruises that didn't show outside. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, she said, in fact, what he's doing is worse than beating the crap out of you. And I, I began, you know, to feel that. And I thought, all right, I don't know what to do. So what I did is I went home and I sat down with him and I apologized for being a bad wife. And I said, you know, I thought all these years I've been loving and forgiving and submissive And instead, I've been enabling. And I've begged for over 30 years for you to get help. And here's what I now know. And because I know this, I will no longer enable. It's in your court. And unless you can show me what you can do to change this, because your words no longer have any value or meaning, you've lied to me for Mm -hmm. over 30 years, then this is is what's going to be. And what I learned is you really don't, and I began to draw boundaries and he would cross every one of them. And what I learned is you really don't do that where someone who's in the sociopath, psychopath category. They don't um, like that at all. No, they don't. And in his defense, good old Dietra had gone along for 32 years and he just assumed she would. And I had given him that data. Um, and so he had good reason to believe it. But he also had good reason to know that when I figured out something and spoke, I had spoken. Mm-hmm. But the deal is he wasn't willing. I brought in an interventionist and a mediator, which I've known, of, I've never known of anybody to do. And both men were horrified. And they would say, is this true? And he would say, yes, it's true. He never changed a word of what I said, because I would just describe the picture. I didn't add this. Mm -hmm. I I would just describe the picture. They would go, is that true? Yes, that's true. And he was confronted forcibly by both men. And then we went into mediation for a while. And what I watched was him charm both men. In fact, I heard him at one of the mediation meetings you know, get all emotional, which he didn't do much, but he cried and he was like, 
you just tell me what I have to do and say to be a godly man. And you know oh, how God runs over you in a moment? Yep. And I was like, this is what he's been telling me. Dietrich, you, you love me. You're the best counselor. You just tell me what I need to do and say to be godly. And he would do it. That was what was so weird. But he didn't give a damn about anybody but himself. Mm-hmm. When yeah. the kids would break bones, I would have to negotiate getting them to the hospital and not him not. The first time a child broke a bone, he'd just come in from a week-long camp. I picked him up. We'd gone to the ministry house he oversaw. My two boys were scuffling. I heard the collarbone pop, and I ran, pulled his shirt off, bright red spot. And I was like, oh, my, I think he broke his collarbone. We need to take him to the hospital. And from behind me, I hear, I'm tired. I just got home. I'm going home. And I turned around, and I was like, but I think he broke his collarbone. He goes, did you hear what I just told you? I'm tired and I'm going home. I was like, well, is it okay with you if I take him to the hospital? If you think that's what you need to do, steal my money. And I said, well, oh, it's I said, home. Can you keep Kevin, the younger son? I guess. Oh, my so God. We went home, him and Kevin stayed there. I took my oldest one to the ER, and once a man x-rayed it and said it was broken, put him in the little sling, and I walked in the front door. And, one, and you know, I can look back. He was sitting on the couch just waiting, and those type of whatever you want to call them, wait for a verdict to see how they need to react next because they know that something, they know they didn't do right, you know, mm-hmm. but they're not going to admit it. So when he walked in the door with the sling, I said, it's broken. He got, and you know, the man is 6'6". He got up off the couch, picked the oldest son up, carried him to bed and goes, well, I broke my collarbone in high school. This hurts. So because he'd experienced it, but a man had x-rayed and said it was broke. And I remember thinking, oh my, I just totally misread that. He, he was just tired. It's okay. But no, through the years, if, if broken bones and it messed with a meeting at church, you know, I had to ask him to come home and splint a bone so I could take the child to the ER. He came and did it and went back to his meeting. And then when I called, I went back and I said, okay, they're saying we have to go to the hospital for surgery. He stood up and goes, you know, guys, I've got to go take care of my son. But he wasn't willing to do it at first until it had been, even though we had to splint it, until it had been x-rayed by a man and said it is broken. Oh it God. had to be an outside authority. Your Your verdict didn't count. Yes, even the crooked bone didn't count. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so I like, wish I wish I was surprised. I know. I'm like this this tracks. I kind of want to zoom out a little bit and talk about sort of like how you how you got to that place. Like we were talking a little bit before we were recording about how you grew up in a very kind of churchy family and you just sort of like married through and married out like a lot of us do do you want to share a little bit about like your journey sort of in and out sure like i said i was born to a pastor and his wife in arkansas it's in the very ultra conservative baptist group which the sbc is normally in the news for being so conservative we were more conservative than the sbc uh, and then my dad uh, was associated with an even more conservative, uh, patriarchal, women are only for this. And so I was raised with all of those ingredients. Was this, and was he associated with Goddard's the, group or? I started to say, then when I was 10 years old, they went to that basic seminar uh-huh. and that became a part. Sorry, didn't mean to jump the gun. That's okay. That's okay. (laughs) So, and plus, I'm gonna be in here somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, I I was raised. uh, I'm a firstborn. Welcome to the club. And I loved my life. Yeah, I loved being a pastor's daughter. I loved um, 
all of that. I, I didn't, when you're, I was born into that and I'm somebody who's going to find the positive and yes, I was a girl and told, you know, my dad would tell me a girl can't be raped unless she wants to be raped. Oh my God. Um, Ooh. So it was just my dad you know, is well loved. He helps a lot of people, but there's still this element of, I don't know, even when I was 54, went back and visited them, you know, he would tell me, I need you to cut my hair. I said, dad, I haven't cut hair in years. Hit snappy's fingers in my face. When did you become so rebellious? Oh my God. Oh my God. Um, and, and you know, that, that, I'm just not going to be doing that anymore. And I could tell you far more, but so that's what I lived with. And, and my dad, uh, I wasn't going to go to college. In fact, I really decided I wasn't going to get married because their marriage was so dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. And also I didn't want to submit to somebody, you know, I was like, I I don't want to do this. Um, it doesn't sound fun. Uh, I think watching my mom have to submit to a man who called her names, who uh, told her how ridiculous she was, who when she would say, Burton, I'm going to go buy groceries. Do we have money? You know, Mm -hmm. the checkbook ledger says minus 500. He goes, don't worry about just go buy groceries. But is it going to be a hot check? Don't worry about it. Just go buy groceries. You know, how do you operate with that? Yeah. So that's not to me. That's like, she doesn't want to write a hot check. Can you tell her it's not a hot check? But he wouldn't, you know. Uh, My mom got our clothes from Salvation Army. She could buy groceries. I mean, she was so frugal, incredible. And how she took care of us. We are always neat and clean as a pen, even though, you know, my favorite sweater cost a quarter at Salvation Army. I thought it was beautiful. She had an eye for all of that. We got mm-hmm. hand-me-downs from the church clothes. But I never felt like I was in Salvation Army clothes or hand-me-downs. I was happy. I had clothes. Mm-hmm. And I had two pair of shoes, one tennis shoes for every day and church shoes. And I went barefoot the rest of the time, you know. I was happy. I didn't know we were poor. And I was going to work hard and keep them happy, you know, and and do everything to please them. And and that's what I tried to do. So that's the life I lived. And then when I got married, my dad had told me several times as a teenager, when you get married, you have to marry somebody that can conquer you because you're too strong. So three weeks into my marriage. Oh, my God. I got got told very similar things. (laughs) Okay. Well, I got to call my dad to come get me. And I spent one whole afternoon trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I could just remember my dad telling me that several times. And then I remembered my mom the week before I got married. She was like, Deidre, marriage is forever. And just so you know that if there's any problems between the two of you, we'll take him, but we won't take you. What? And yeah. Because she wanted me to know, hey, this is, you, you've decided this, you know, this is what's going to happen. You need to know, you got to, no matter what. And I understood her intent, but as I, I was carrying my laundry to the building where laundry was in our apartment complex, and and I, I wanted out, I wanted to run, I wanted to scream. And I thought, no, this is what my mom said, so I can't go back. And plus, my dad told me this, so you know what? The problem is I'm prideful and mm. I just have to give my pride and submit and become the wife that pleases him, you know? Mm. And that's what I did for 32 years until I went and talked to somebody. That's, that's a lot. That's, that's so much. It must really suck to you know, feel that kind of abandonment from your parents. Um, I mean, it, it did. I don't know that I ever categorized it that as that as much as it was them telling. And my dad preached a sermon. Like we, they lived in Alabama. I was in college, went home for a month, and we all drove to Arkansas for my wedding. And Sunday night, 
um, my dad, we all went to church. Of course, dad preached the sermon. We left Monday morning for the wedding on Friday. And my dad said to the church, this sermon tonight is just for my daughter, Deetra. And the sermon was, no matter what, you do what's right. And it was, you have to read your Bible, you have to pray, you have to do these things. And I was the only one who moved during the invitation, but I went forward to commit myself to submission and to do what was right for the rest of my life. And I look back on that and I'm like, are you kidding? <laughs> That's so many. But I still... I, I I don't go to church anymore, but I'm telling you, my faith in a one true living God, and I say it in those terms because the box of God and the religion, I don't have use for any of that anymore, but I am still very much a praying woman, and I am sifting through everything. It's kind of like a baseball where all rubber bands melted, one's true, one's a lie, <laughs> but I'm still gathering that root. And I'm not going to let what they have said and used his name keep me from warning about him and his love for me. And I, that's my path I'm on. Yeah, that's very, a very familiar yeah. deconstruction experience, I think. Um, it's hard. It's hard work. It's, it's good work, but it's hard work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot that comes up. It's hard. <laughs> comes up like a beach ball has been held underwater for a long time. Yeah. Comes up, flies up. You're like, <laughs> what was that? And where does it go? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you'll just be like minding your own business, figuring things out, and you just like hit a brick wall and you're just like, what was this? Why is. Right. <laughs> Where I did this come this from? I wasn't there before. <laughs> I know this is a difficult part of your story, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the kids who, you know, rejected you after you left. Um, Because we have a lot of people in our community who've had the inverse happen. And I'm curious to hear if you, if anything changed after your story came out on Humans of New York, if any of them know shifted positions at all or what that's been like since then and maybe if you have any anything you'd like to say to you know folks like Kieran whose parents have just rejected them because they left well this is a subject it's a lot I'm sorry it's okay Uh, it is my greatest sorrow Um, I received a message from someone in my old life and, you know, a few days after the story came out, um, it was like, you know, it's amazing what you'll do for money. I hope you enjoy it. You have forever slammed the door on your kids ever speaking to you again. And, oh my God, um, it was pretty, you know, hateful. And I responded kindly and firmly and she sent a long apology Um, she said one of my daughters had come over and given her a very sincere apology for what I was doing in life and I was like this had nothing to do with money when when Brandon approached me I didn't know there was any money I didn't know anything about that you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, am I grateful for the fundraiser (laughs) I could weep for hours over what that has done for my ability to know I'm going to be okay in the future, you know, Mm -hmm. but, and Brandon had asked, do you think your children read the story? I said, I don't know, but I'm talking to my children. I wish they could see me as a human and maybe look behind the scenes uh, and see that I was protecting them, but I realized what I thought they knew they didn't know, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and I raised them in that, and that's on me. And I've had to step back and go, you know, I have to own my part in teaching and loving and doing this. And this is a consequence of doing these things. Do I hope and pray one day 
I do. It's been six years since I've seen their faces, since I've heard their voices. Mm-hmm. Um, that first night when the car picks me up on the interstate, Garrison put me up in a hotel room and my children, five of them came to that hotel room to talk to me because when I drew boundaries and quit enabling, it got hellish around our house and it was mm-hmm. for a year and a half. And they were blaming me because he could walk around and act like nothing was wrong. And I was crying knowing I was seeing the end of a lot of years of work. Mm-hmm. And, um, So they came to the hotel room, and I told them this. I said, I'm hoping one day you're going to understand and know that I'm doing this for you as well as me. And, you know, to my two girls, if a man ever treats you this way, you need to get away. And to my boys sitting here, if you treat your wife this way, I hope she leaves you. Mm -hmm. So in my eyes, I still teaching my children whether or not they want to listen or they want to see But I'm still teaching them that just because someone uses the name of God doesn't mean God's involved or that it's truth Mm -hmm. or that it's what you should do. And it hurts me. (laughs) But I'm going to try to live an incredible life, whether or not they acknowledge me, validate me, or care. I tried to just leave them alone because I, you know, six months after I left, I flew back to Arkansas to see them and give them, have Christmas with them and uh, see my daughter in a play. Mm-hmm. And I asked each one of them, you know, what if I move back and get an apartment and get a job? I want to see you. And, you know, the, most of them were like, we think that'd be a good thing. But two of them told me, we don't want you here. It would make Mm -hmm. it too difficult. And my mistake was that I did not go back and tell anybody this. I asked everybody, this is what two told me. And I just thought, you know what? They've been to hell and back. And and I get the blame because I'm the whistleblower. And I love them enough. I don't don't want it to be hard on them. So I'm just going to stay away and let them try to put their lives together. And, you know, maybe they're going to ask me questions and we can have a conversation. But I also went back in my house, you know, my name's on the mortgage. I have key to the the door. You know, I knew he would be at work and I went through my house and he had staged it, got in our wedding pictures out, laid them out. He had, you know, the vow by Billy Graham, where this man's what? wife gets dementia at oh. early age. He laid He laid out the Joseph Zahn series of, you know, God brings everything for a reason. He had that laid out, and he had made this huge welcome banner. He's an artist. Tanya in the dining room, welcome home. You know, so anybody comes in the house, it looks like, you know, this is what's going on. Meanwhile, he sends me an email, you got to come home sometime, darling. He leaves the G off of darling, puts a little mark up there, (laughs) and, uh, you know, just contemptuous, Mm -hmm. arrogant would write letters and, and he figured out I was with my oldest son and my son read them. I read like two that came in when he was out of state and it was like, I walked the dog to the corner. Maybe you'll be home by Thanksgiving. I'm not going to ask you to come home. You know how I feel about that. So on my end, there's nothing wow. going on to say we're in a bad situation. So after, you know, I was there in the house, I saw all that and I thought, this is not fair that the King is acting like, you know, the kingdom is hurt because of the queen left. So I decided to go back and get my things. And that's what I did. And the next day, my kids disowned me. And, you know, I was told, you might have a legal right, but you don't deserve them because you left. Well, oh these my are my God. personal things. I took 14 to exceptional. I bought it. And we had two of them. We had two of them identical except for the fabric. I took one left in one. I took the guest bed, but I only took things that I bought or were given to me. And um, I didn't take anything for the running of the house. I didn't take anything out of the kitchen. Uh, but that was so abhorrent. But I was like, I'm going to, this king needs to know, you're just sitting up here acting like you've been harmed, like you were wronged. Are you kidding me? I'm going to take my things. I didn't take near all my things. But I took enough to furnish a one-bedroom apartment, put it in a store. I hired a U-Haul. I got three guys Mm -hmm. to help. And it was $58 a month. And I put it in there, and I was like, you know, God, 
I don't know if I'll ever get to where I can have my own apartment in New York, and who knows if the sectional would even fit through the door of a New York apartment or much less find a living room it's going to fit in. But I'm giving it to you. All I want to know is uh, he can't have it. He's not mm-hmm. going to sit there and act like I don't know. So, and as you know, I now have an apartment in my 14. I'm sitting on my 14-foot sectional. <laughs> nice. And I'm, look, I'm looking at my drapes. I had saved my money, got this fabric half price at Hobby Lobby. I made it. And I have my drapes and my things. And, you know, I don't have an explanation for everything. All I can tell you is when he asked me to lie for him to get a job over a lot of pastors, I said, you know the story of Ananias and Sapphira? God killed Sapphira separately. <laughs> Beautiful. That, oh, that's great. Oh, oh, that's amazing. That's so good. Oh, my God. What a good comeback. That's, that, that, that just needs like a mic drop. That's beautiful it's great <laughs> don't lie for your husband or you'll end up like sapphira <laughs> oh my god um, um but to your listeners that are hurt by moms one i'm so sorry that you know this has happened my mom telling me I'm mentally ill and I need to get back. I mean, I was an adult, so I don't have necessarily the pain they may have. But I know that when you're born into certain situations or you're taught you only get blessed this way, you get so befuddled in your brain you can't process. And if every time you move or do your like the back of your hand is slapped with a uh, a wooden spoon. All you know is pain and you just want to be able to not have the pain so you don't move and just try to keep people fed mm-hmm. and moving forward. And mine was suicide or get out and I did it in a rather dramatic way, but it was, I didn't know what else to do. And somehow God managed to lay out steps one step at a time. And the path that's been paved for me, I would tell you, is miraculous. And it's not been easy or cheerful, but it's a beautiful path. Yeah. One thing I love about your Humans of New York story, the narrative arc of it, the way it's structured, is it's, it's functionally a map out for those who are still in. And so regardless of how your kids feel about it, I I believe that there are people out there who see this, who read this story and realized that there was a way out and you could, you could survive it and um, are probably taking steps to do that now. Like I, I just, I know the number of times that like I've been approached by people in the past who like watched me get divorced and bail on abusive religion who came to me later and were like, I didn't end up marrying that guy I was with in college because I watched what happened to you or, you know, the various things. Um, mm-hmm. Like you did, you probably have no idea, but like, what you have done with your own life is a huge gift to this community. And it is a gift to your children, whether or not they want it because it's a, it's a roadmap. Yeah. Yeah. So much like, well, go ahead. No, 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 please go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say like, just being able to see a way out is so huge. And I've been disowned from my parents for like 12 years now and I raised my siblings because I was the oldest and it it wasn't until like my brother who's closest to me reached out to me kind of early on after I left but it wasn't until last year that I started talking with some of my other siblings and I got to see my sister who's closest in age to me for the first time right before I moved to Berlin and it was huge and it was 
12 years of like otherwise silence, but she still knew that I was here and that I cared and that she could reach out to me, even though like we hadn't talked because my parents were like, you can't talk to your siblings either for reasons. Um, and then like just sort of like putting that out there and letting them know one of the things I did, because I also left in a rather dramatic fashion on, on my mm -hmm. 18th birthday, I just sort of like, I convinced my parents to let me have a party at the mall and I would go to a movie and it would be by myself because I was 18. And then I had my uh, partner who became my first spouse come drive down from Maine and take me away during the time that the movie was happening. And I, I left oh, wow. like notes for them in my bedroom and just like kind of explain to them sort of the way that you explain to your kids, like, look, this isn't about you. Like, I love you and I will always be here for you. And this is just something that I have to do in order to save myself and also hopefully to like give you a way out as well. Yeah. And it, yeah, it took like 12 years before that kind of came around and my siblings are a lot closer to my parents obviously than I am and they're more religious and conservative and stuff than I am but they still know that there is like that possibility and just like taking that step and showing people that like it's okay to choose your life is such a big yeah. deal especially from our world where like that was like the gravest sin for someone who yeah. wasn't born a man to do right well, I have received, like I said, hundreds, thousands of messages from all over the world. I have received messages from pastors in my old life saying, you've got to keep talking, keep talking. Wow. Whoa. I have received a message from several children that I was friends with their parents who say, keep talking. You're the only parent talking. Please keep talking. Wow. I have is from women who say, my therapist sent the story. I'm escaping soon. Oh. I printed your story. His closet. I'm escaping soon. One woman was like, Deetra, I read your story. I was so abused as a child. I've never spoke of it. When I got to the boxing chapter, I ran to my kitchen started dancing around, boxing the air, screaming, fuck that shit, I'm healed, thank Aww, you. That's <laughs> so great. The wow. people who are flying in from all over the United States to the shows, you know, as they leave, you know, Dietra, I read your story and I want you to know because of your story and what you did, I made this decision in my life and this is what's going on, thank you. And so what I like about this is, you know, someone had said, Deetra, you know, Humans of New York is going to make you famous. And I said, oh, my, I don't want to be famous. I have no desire to be famous. What I do want, I want to be known as a human, as a woman, as Deetra. And I have some things to say. That's what I want. And mm -hmm. I don't, also don't want to be like the religious world does. Who's the latest God we can put on a pedestal and follow yeah. and say, this is our God. I don't desire that but for the stories to come back and say i read your story you so inspired me i'm doing this oh yeah i like that mm -hmm. yeah i like that it's such a gift it's such a gift so, what was you. what was <laughs> one of the things that kind of like made you realize that now was the time and that that sort of like helped you start to see that it was okay to get out like I told you, 32 years, I went and talked to somebody. I stayed another year and a half, and I spent that year and a half praying. And I was like, God, I'm the only one that has this figured out. If you'll just take me home, then my kids don't have to know. And the people in all these churches that, and we traveled for eight years in 16 states. We were, you know, very well known in our little tiny circle. We had a tiny circle. We signed hundreds of autographs. We were famous in our little circle. I'm telling you, it's a little circle, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we, okay, we were well known for things. And I did not want those people to be hurt. But I had figured out the truth. And I was 
flabbergasted at what I had been living with, what was really going on, and that I had been a part of it. That was what horrified me, not so much the other, but that I had I had helped cover this up and to teach him what to do, to be to look godly. I had done that. Mm. And if you just take me home, no one has to know, you know, because I'm the only one who cares. Nobody else cares in this religious world. All they want is the performance. And and I prayed that, and I made a mistake of telling my doctor who was in Springdale, and I, I would travel to see him, and he had helped me kind of navigate, you know, my reliving childhood stuff at the age of 42. And, and I, of course, didn't know about my marriage. And I told him one day, I said, this is what's going on. And I said, I'm just asking God to kill me so that nobody has to know. And this very wise man kind of leaned up forward on his desk and he said, change your prayer. And I was like, what? He said, change your prayer. And I was horrified because I really thought this out. I thought it was a brilliant plan. And I just knew God was going to go along with it because <laughs> he wants his name protected for all. And I was <laughs> You know, the doctor was like, change your prayer. And I said, why? And he said, because your body hears you. Wow. And I looked at him and I said, well, I'm dying. I said, I can tell I'm dying. He said, change your prayer. And there were times I would go see this doctor. Uh, He was an amazing gift in my life. And I would say, you know, God, these are my questions I have before the throne. And Here's the deal. I'm going to ask him, and would you let your words come out of his mouth? And, you know, I've learned if you don't ask, you don't get answers. And so I just ask. I'm having this problem. You know, can you give me some words here? And out of his mouth would come things the doctor would never say. And I'd be like, wow. And I left there, and I said, God, is this not the plan you want? You don't want your name protected? You don't, you don't, you don't want all this? So nobody knows because it's going to hurt people. And and I said, you've got to show me another path. And, you know, the I, I had a church I was going to, and I talked to the pastor and his wife, and he said, you've got to get away. I was horrified. Mm-hmm. And, and I had four people tell me, you've got to get away. Four people have been married a long time, never divorced. So I couldn't say, they can't say, oh, you know, I divorced, you need to divorce. No, these right. are people who've been married years and years and years, never divorced, and said, you have got to get away from him. Mm-hmm. And I was like, God, so one day my prayer was, here's the deal, God, you say you, you know, witnesses two or three, I've got four now. I know what you're telling me, but here's the deal, I can't. Do you understand? This is going to hurt so bad. I can't. But I'll tell you, if you'll give me a fulcrum, I will do it. Just can't come up with a fulcrum on my own. And we're driving down the interstate, and we've been in this meeting, and this man has, you know, shredded me because uh, he thinks I'm not submissive. My man I was married to lied about money so much. He had lied to me horribly, and I said, get financial help, and and this man had talked to me on the phone. He goes, look, I've told him, he has to make it. You're his wife. You need to know everything. And I said, well, he lies a lot. So when we got in this meeting, this man was furious that I had spoken against my husband and said he lies and shredded me. Shredded me. And I got up, I got up and walked out of the meeting and just said, I'm done. And we're driving back, and my husband took courage from this and looked at me and said, you just need to get on my team and work with me. Hmm. And I looked at him and I said, I've been on yours for 34 years. And I, and I don't know, something sma- – I just – I'd had it. I'd been researching passive-aggressive sociopaths. He checked off every box, and I just looked at him and I said, you're a son of a bitch. <laughs> and, oh, my goodness, this gave him something to be – you know, over me now. His oh, he was waiting was for this it. The he first so time excited. that you swore. Was this the first time you yeah, swore? So yeah, he was so excited to have something on you. Finally, yeah, he had, um, and he's like, "I'm gonna pull over and tell you something." And I'm like, "I don't know." Saying "son of a bitch" kind of set me free, and I was like, "You go right ahead." <laughs> so he pulls over, gets in my face with his finger, leaning in, yelling at me. And he had never done that before. In his defense, he had never done that before. But I'd, I'd never called him a son of a bitch either. Yeah. <laughs> <And he's laughs> you know, when he's yelling and he's like, 
Satan, in the name of Jesus, you're never allowed to speak through my wife again. And for some reason, I felt this little joy bubble burst inside of me. And I thought, this is so funny. And it was like, in that moment, it was like, this is the fulcrum, Dietrich. Get out. Mm-hmm. I got my purse. I opened the door to the suburban. I started walking. And I felt this freedom and relief, but also I don't have a clue what's going on. And I was like, you know, God, I kind of, I don't mind walking, but it was dusky dark on the interstate. And I thought, I need help. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I looked up and you know how long it takes to pull off the interstate and your brake lights go off? It takes a long time. Mm-hmm. All right. This car's brake lights were already off. She was sitting there waiting. And I wow. said, well, there's the car. And and I'm going to get in the car, God, and, and it may be a serial killer, could be probably, but at least it's more better than what I'm in the car with. So I'm going to get in the car with that person, but I really wish I knew if I could trust them. And the side door opened, and this woman got out, and it was dusty dark. All I could tell was she wasn't a teenager. She had long hair just past her shoulders. The wind from the traffic was blowing it back, and I mean, immediately I knew I could trust this woman. And she started walking towards me very purposefully. And the closer she got, the harder I was crying. And she got between me and traffic, slid an arm around my back, got my left hand. And she goes, ma'am, did you want to ride? And I said, I do. She said, God said to stop and pick you up. I said, I told him I needed help. What I didn't know and why she was walking so purposefully is he was parked running And as she opens the back door to get me in, he grabs me from behind. And he said, "Uh, she's with me and she's going with me. We've had a fight, but she's fine. And it was like this crazy scene on, you know, my life. I I turned to him and I said, I'm going to call the police. And as usual, he was inappropriate. He goes, well, I'm going to call the police and tell them you're with somebody I don't know. I was like, go right ahead. <laughs> what are they going to do? <laughs> yeah, you call the police and tell them I'm with somebody you don't know. So I got in the car. She shut the door. She got in. And uh, he, you know, he's six foot six. He got down in her face. And he was like, you know, I don't know who you are. And she was, I know she's rescued before. I, I'm really praying that I get to find her and thank her. Mm. But she was very smart. Calmly looked at him and she said, I'm a doctor with the Choctaw Nation. So she gives credentials, but she doesn't tell her name. Nice. And he goes, well, I'm going to follow you. She goes, you do whatever you need to do. And he gets out, shuts the door. He looks at her daughter. She said, start driving. And um, I'm distraught you know I'm just distraught and she waits until I can get down to a small snubbing and she says you have to get away from that man and I said I just did she said no I mean you can never get where he can lay a hand on you Mm -hmm. she said you need to get for you and I said I'm going to do that And I called Garrison. I used her phone. I'd left mine in the car, and I knew his number by heart. Called him because, Mom, his phone are you on? I told him what happened. He goes, I'm going to get you a hotel room. And that started this incredible journey where I now live in Harlem and smoke cigars. And, you know. (laughs) That's so good. That's so good. I'm so glad that you made it out and that you're now, like, living your best life and doing shows and smoking cigars. And I also love that you're smoking cigars because that was one of like my funny things too, is like girls can't smoke cigars. So when I hung out with some friends in Ohio, I smoked a cigar and had whiskey and it was like the best, most healing like thing. I was just like, yes, I am smoking a cigar. Fuck you. It was beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) I never thought of it in that way. Um, Mine is, I'm not even going to that story. This has gone long enough, but it's the whole story of what happened in 2020. And, you know, I had to walk through the sea of cigar men outside smoking. They kept inviting. But anyway, mine was, it. I I, I um, was abused as a child and, and part of it was being suffocated over and over and over. And I get nervous. I hold my breath. Yeah. Cigar smoke is an exercise in breathing where you breathe deep. And I, I struggle to relax. What I have learned, this is the most relaxing thing 
and that I have ever done. And I go sit on my corner in Harlem with my JBL speaker, smoke. I did it last night. It is incredible what that does to me. And the community of the Harlem Cigar Room and those guys adopting me and like, we got your back. We have your back. Aww. A life of not being protected and being protected by Har- <laughs> There we go. Okay. Yes, you're protected by Harlem. And that is so beautiful. Yeah, I've had a couple of women come. I mean, a lot of people now will come by as I'm outside smoking, saying I read your story. And one woman came up one day and she said... <laughs> She said, I've been talking about you for months to my roommate and my friends. And I'm like, there's this older white woman who sits out in front of the cigar room and she is so at peace, but she does not belong. (laughs) (laughs) That's the vibe. Yeah, she said, your story came out on Instagram and I called everybody. I now know the story of the older white woman. She goes, I want to tell you, I'm from Memphis. Your story resonates with me. It's the story of my mom, and I wish she would get it. It meant a lot to me. You've you've worked so, so hard, and just the image of you sitting and smoking and listening to your music on the corner just sounds so, like, such a reward, such a rest after all that hard work. It is. (laughs) It is. I feel like that's a a good image to end on. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Oh my God. What a delight. Yeah. This has been lovely. If people want to like, I know your shows are probably like coming up soon. If people want to run to New York to see your show, is there a way they can find out about your show? All of these shows, all eight shows sold out in three hours. Amazing. So. <laughs> that's great. Okay, never mind, but that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'm very thankful. Um, I, I don't have any other shows booked at this time. I will be doing that later, but I'm going to have to take a little bit of break after these 10 and um, get my breath and figure out what I'm going to be doing. Like I'm, be working hard on a book, uh, reframing the book I've already written and other projects. But it has been, you know, my honor to be with all of you today. And thank you for validating. You thank know, you my so dream. much. It means it means so much to me that you're willing to come on, and it gives me a lot of hope for other like moms who grew up the same way or lived the same way like in a weird way it gives me hope for my mom which is pretty cool so thank you for living your best life and being an example to everyone else well those moms have it very rough Mm -hmm. they have it very very rough yeah yeah I feel like we could talk forever just about like the bind that (laughs) people are in 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 this world it's such it's such, it's a, such a trap yeah well it is the trap in getting out and then um you know that's a whole nother conversation of the yeah. thoughts of yeah i like leaving it at harlem smoking a cigar at peace yes i think, I think that is perfect everyone should find the thing that brings them peace like that i think right. That's that's everyone's homework at the end of this if, episode. If people want to buy you a cigar, is there is there a donation page still up somewhere? You know, um, I would just say call the Harlem Cigar Room um, and <laughs> do it that way. I don't know how it works, but... Um, okay. You know, if they want to buy, buy a cigar, um, I have I have Cash App, I have Venmo, I have whatever. I would appreciate being bought a cigar. That's quite a quite a uh, a treasure, and I would enjoy the. For me, it's not just a cigar; it's an acceptance of love, of camaraderie, of hope, of respect. You know, to me, that's what it is, and I mm-hmm. appreciate that. 
All right. Well, we'll include those links in, in the show notes as well. Yeah. All right. Teacher, good luck Thank with your you. show tonight. Thank you for taking time with us. This was so great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Find something that brings you peace, like smoking a cigar in Harlem, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Kitchen Table Cult podcast. Our music is from the track Janet by the Bend the Heavens on their album Stenazzo. Our producer is Dave the Great. Our podcast is made possible by Patreon donations from listeners like you. To support us and join our community on Slack, check out patreon.com slash kitchen table cult pod. Thanks for listening.